Bridges to Bailey, back to Bridges, once more to Bailey, now it's Bridges, here's Bailey, oh my, Bridges, Bailey, Bailey, Bridges, and they scored! Last play of the game, 98 yards to go, and these boys ain't got no more hope than a pig in a parlor. Pitch goes to the right, defense closing in, and he's floating. He's in the air, a human being is taking flight, he's flying to the 50, the end zone, touchdown! The piggies have done it, I turned, I turned, I turned, the piggies win! Oh, and Roger Federer is clearly mouthing the F word at the crowd, and they are letting him hear it. What a disgraceful display from the Swiss. Oh, what's this? He's throwing it back. This could change the sport. A terrible day for fishing. A great day for the fish. This is Apocalypse Sports Radio. And now your host, Shane Ryan. Ah, okay. Episode number 10, Apocalypse Sports Radio. That hype man gets more and more embarrassing with each passing episode. Might have to do something about that. <laughs> all right. Everybody who is listening, thank you so much. If you've listened for all 10 episodes, thank you especially. Uh, really cool to have you guys along. And today's guest, I think you're going to enjoy quite a lot. It's John Feinstein. And for anyone who loves to read about sports, you probably know him quite well already. Uh, John made his name originally with Season on the Brink, his first book about Bobby Knight and the Indiana Hoosiers. Uh, remains, I believe, the best-selling sports book of all time. Uh, it's a true classic. Uh, and he has now written 42 books, all of them great. Uh, he's worked for the Washington Post. He still writes for them and for Golf Digest. He's done radio work. He's done it all. Uh, his newest book, which just came out in March, is called The Back Roads to March. And it's a story about some of the smaller college basketball programs. And for people who have read his Army-Navy book um, or his book about the Patriot uh, League basketball teams, you know that these are the kind of stories he does so well. Uh, the Wall Street Journal called the book a heartfelt missive to college basketball and said there is no better guide to this world than Mr. Feinstein. True enough. Uh, so yeah, I hope you're going to enjoy that and we'll get there in just a minute. Really quickly, I will plug, as usual, the Apocalypse Sports Network. Uh, for just $3 a month, uh, really just no money. Everyone has it. Um, no, but for three bucks a month, you can get, uh, five blog posts each week, uh, two podcasts each week, one podcast like this, which is a longer form interview with somebody, um, involved in the world of sports and one shorter one. That's kind of like a, a quick hitter variety show. So if that's interesting to you, go to patreon.com slash apocalypse sports. And if you want to check out some of the blog content, apocalypse is a place you can go. Uh, I've said this before, I think, but. I really wanted ApocalypseSports.com, but that is the URL uh, website of a gun store in Louisiana. So no luck. Don't want to challenge those guys. Anyway, uh, let's do this thing. Let's talk with Mr. John Feinstein. Segment break. All right. Quite pleased to have John Feinstein here. John, how's it going? I guess I'm the same as everybody, Shane, just sort of waiting this out and hoping we can return to semi semi-normalcy in the not-too-distant future. Yeah, and you've had a more interesting run than most lately. Your book, uh, Backwards to March, came out uh, in early March, and two ways to look at it in my head. On one hand, okay, the pandemic comes, and everybody wants to do things. Maybe more people are reading. Maybe more people are buying books. But on the other hand, this is a book about basketball, and you're missing that national moment when everybody is focused on basketball. So was that a good thing, that timing, or was it, did it end up being a bad thing? Well, it was definitely a bad thing, Shane, um, although you're right. There are people 
who have ordered and bought the book uh, to try to replace to some extent uh, March Madness. Uh, but uh, the timing of the publication early March was clearly designed to ramp the book up just at, into basketball's postseason with the conference tournaments and then the NCAA tournament. In fact, I was scheduled to go on news hour, which is a huge hit yeah, uh, yeah. for a book uh, the day before the tournament was to begin. And obviously that got canceled because having someone on to talk about a basketball tournament that wasn't going to be played amidst the pandemic probably wasn't going to be a great segment. And I lost a lot of promotional stuff, book signings mm -hmm. and uh, appearances and um, interviews that I would normally have been doing uh, to promote the book. The good news is the book has sold quite well under the circumstances. It's into a second printing, oh, nice. uh, which is always a good thing. Cause as you know, it makes the publisher very happy when they have to go back for another printing. Right. Uh, and the reviews have been spectacular. I, 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 I've been really thrilled that everybody who has written a review or spoken a review that I have seen now, I may have missed some, but has been wildly uh, positive about the book and about what I was trying to do and why I did it. So overall, I'm really happy with how the book is done in terms of reviews and sales. Obviously, it would have been better if there had been a basketball tournament. Yeah, well, I can tell you, even on Goodreads, which I like to go to for the sort of rank and file opinion, it is extremely positive. And so you can, uh, not just the reviewers, but the people seem to enjoy it too, there and on Amazon. Which is very important, of course, since the people are the ones who buy the books. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So do I have it right that this was number 42 for you? Right. That's correct. Yeah. To me, that's amazing. I, I remember last year uh, you and I spoke uh, for a story I was doing about, about Duke basketball. And I believe you were traveling from Bowie's Creek to Norfolk. You were driving uh, through the night. Good memory. I was, yeah, I was actually traveling from Bowie's Creek home. Okay. I had gone from Norfolk to Bowie's Creek, but that's a good memory. Yes. Late night conversation. So I'm 37 years old, and sometimes I feel like I'm on the very verge of being sick uh, of this entire thing. Uh, here you are, 30-some-odd years after writing Season on the Brink, 42 books deep, and yet it still seems like you've got the energy. So a broader question, how the hell do you do it? Uh, and a more specific one, um, what was it like writing this book? Did you have fun doing it? Uh, was it a nice process? Yeah, it, it, it's 34. Um, and one of the ways I do it, Shane, is – by picking projects that a interest me uh, and b that I think I'll be enthusiastic about carrying out in terms of the reporting and the research. And uh, I'm, I'm lucky that because of some of the success I've had, most of the time my editors will trust me when I come to them with, with an idea, not all the time. There, there's, <laughs> yeah. As you know, there's always somebody in the publishing business who thinks you're smarter. He's smarter than you are. Um, but most of the time I've been able to do the projects I've wanted to do. And this was a perfect example. I, if you think about it in today's market, a book that's going to involve almost no one, uh, who's rich or famous or a celebrity, or is going to be a, a lottery pick, or is going to have Dick Vitale screaming about him, uh, would, uh, it's counterintuitive to think of that as being marketable. But I think my editors trusted me enough to know that with my background in basketball, um, and with my reporting background that I could make the book work. And the process was incredibly enjoyable. Uh, as you know, I don't mind driving. Uh, I don't mind driving 
driving back roads. Uh, I find I actually enjoy the solitude a lot. I mean, I'm married. I have an ex-wife and I have a wife and I have three children. So a little <laughs> bit of time alone in the car is not a terrible thing. Yes. Um, and I went to places where not only did I feel welcome, but uh, where I was happy to be there. I went back to places I'd been in the past. I went to new places. Bowie's Creek, Campbell University was certainly one of them. Um, and enjoyed my time with the players and the coaches that I dealt with. And I think part of it was because I felt like they were enjoying their time with me. You know what it's like to be around big time athletes. Yeah. Even in many cases, even when they sit down and give you time, you can almost see them squirming. And I, I can't remember one time when I felt like somebody I was talking to squirmed throughout the research of this book. Yeah, you know, as somebody, me, who's staring down the barrel of a year or more of, of trying to talk to professional golfers, which can be rewarding, but is more often kind of a grind. And like you said, even when you do get them to sit down, there's a sense of reluctance or something like that. Uh, this did seem like a dream book in a way. You get to go to these smaller programs. Um, you know, everybody's going to know who you are. So I imagine they were very eager to talk to you. And yeah, it's good to hear that you had that experience. Is there any... Was there any program or team that you look back on now is kind of this this thing you didn't expect? And, what, you know, I guess what I'm asking is what were your favorite parts and who were your favorite people to meet while you were writing this? Well, it is really hard to separate out because, as I said, I did enjoy everybody. Mm -hmm. yeah, uh, yeah. Every minute I ever spend in the palestra is a good minute in my life. And this book gave me a number of excuses to go uh, and spend time in the palestra, including the the double header on a Saturday right before Christmas where uh, St. Joseph's played um, it, it played Loyola in the second game, Loyola final four. And in the first game, uh, directs the temple and it was Fran Dunphy's last game as a coach mm. in the palestra. Of course he played in the palestra in high school, played in the palestra at LaSalle coached for 17 years at Penn and then 13 more coming back there as the temple coach. And when he was introduced that day, the fans wouldn't stop cheering and clapping for him. It was a five minute ovation wow. with him constantly saying, please stop, please stop. And they wouldn't stop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that's a very fond memory. Um, going with army uh, to play in Cameron against Duke uh, is a very fond memory because the army kids gave Duke everything they could have wanted. Uh, the game was 48, 42 at halftime. That's right. That's right. Uh, yeah. And, uh, Mike Krzyzewski, I walked on the court coaches and Mike Krzyzewski looked at me and said, what the blank are you doing here? <laughs> and I said, well, I gave a pregame talk and walking off at halftime, I looked at him and I said, geez, I guess I did a pretty good job. He did not crack a smile. <laughs> um, but it was, that was a fun day. And, uh, you mentioned Bowie's Creek that that was the site of the big South tournament. And, uh, I, I really enjoyed Chris Clemens, who was a 5'9 kid. Nobody recruited because he was 5'9 and went on to become the third leading scorer in the history of the NCAA. Um, and uh, he was terrific to talk to and fun to watch play. Uh, and I, that day was so much fun. And you talk about people uh, being uh, happy to see me or knowing me, whatever. Uh, Pat Kelsey, the Winthrop coach. Um, mm -hmm who coached with Skip Prosser at, at, at Wake Forest, um, he told me that when he saw me sitting in the back of the interview room, he wrote a note to the moderator and said, is that John Feinstein back there? <laughs> and the moderator said it was me. And I had a great talk with Pat. You might remember several years ago after the shootings in Newtown, 
um, he came out very publicly and said, we have got to do something about gun control in oh, this country. I don't remember and actually, that. And, yeah. actually, and actually started a, uh, um, uh, an, an event in the name of one of the Newtown victims. Uh, a, a kid was a, he was a young, very young triathlete and Pat and his wife, the last few years have hosted a triathlon in his name that his parents come to, uh, in, um, uh, Winthrop, South Carolina. And, you know, those are guys who, instead of just sending a PR guy out to say, so-and-so gave this much money to charity they And so I, I admire Pat Kelsey a lot, but it, there was rarely a moment when I wasn't enjoying myself. Maybe when I got out of the car in West Hartford, Connecticut to see it was three degrees outside. <laughs> right. Maybe I didn't enjoy that walk inside. Um, but beyond that, it was, all good night with Jim Calhoun was a riot because he was as intense coaching a division three team as he was coaching in the final four. All right. Yeah. It's great to hear these stories that you have of, of writing about these players and coaches who are not in the highest echelons, but who are, you know, still incredibly talented and they're lifers in some cases and all, they've all got great stories, but also I think there's probably a trade-off uh, in the sense that when you write a book about them, there's less immediate appeal so when you deal with your publishers, is there a give and take between, okay, I'm going to write this book that I really want to write, uh, and maybe the next one I'll do or the previous one I did is about something like the Ryder Cup or Coach K or something that's a little bit more high profile? There is some of that. I mean, I'm smart enough to know that I can't just, you know, I said at the end of Backroads to March that if I could spend the next 10 years doing the same book with different characters, one, I'd never run out of material yeah. because there's so much. Uh, and two, that I would enjoy it every single time. My publisher is not going to go for that. I know that. Uh, when I <laughs> yeah. did the Army-Navy book 25 years ago, uh, I knew that uh, they, they didn't really want me to do it, but they did let me do it. Next book had to be a little more high profile, so I wrote a book about life in the ACC as the, as the, the follow-up. So, um Yes, there is that give and take. And it's, it's not so much that they actually say to me, you need to write your next book on more on better known people. I just sort of know it in my gut. And I've been lucky in the sense that, like you mentioned, uh, Mike Krzyzewski. So I, I did the, the Legends Club on Mike Dean and Jim Valvano. Mm -hmm. And that was an idea I came to sitting with Mike at a dinner where he was receiving an award and I was presenting it to him. And we started talking about Dean and Jim and Dean was still alive at that point, but very sick. Jim, of course had passed away. Uh, and the more I heard Mike talk about them and, and how emotional he got talking about both of them, I said, it's extraordinary that I was right in the middle of all this in the eighties when they were competing with oh, yeah. one another and, and, and desperately trying to beat one another. Uh, when Mike and Dean couldn't stand each other. Um, and I, I know all these stories and, even though I can't talk to Dean, I can't talk to Jim. I got plenty of notes and tapes and memories. And that's where I came up with the idea for the legends club. It, and it wasn't my publisher pushing me write a book about famous people. It was just an idea that came to me and it happened to be about famous people just as the back roads to March idea came to me sitting at a, a UMBC Vermont game a couple of years back and thinking how much fun I was having at this game. Mm -hmm. and how, how really talented the players were and how much I was enjoying watching the competition and thinking to myself, you know, what if I could do this, this for a whole year, hang around with teams and coaches and programs and, and coaches like this. 
and it was the same at my reaction was the same as the legends club. This is a book. Right. And it happened that one book was about famous people and the other one wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting to hear that about to, to follow up on the coach K getting sentimental about Dean Smith, because as you said, you know, they were not great friends when they were at the height of their competitive powers. Um, was that something that, you know, coach K appreciates in hindsight, when did their relationship change that he kind of grew an appreciation for Dean? I think it changed Shane when Dean stopped coaching. That's right. That's, that's not my a coincidence. <laughs> because they weren't competing against each other in recruiting. They weren't competing against each other on the court. Uh, they weren't competing against each other in the media. And I also think that as time went on and Mike's star continued to rise, he understood that he had become Dean in the sense that he was now the target. That's right. You know, when I when when I was in school and and even through most of the A's. The, everybody ACC always said that Dean got all the calls and it, it came to a head that one night in 1984, when Mike said after a close loss to Carolina, that there was a double standard, one for Dean and one for all the other coaches in the league, which infuriated Dean. Mm -hmm. and, and now, you know, everybody says Duke gets all the calls yeah. uh, because Duke has been a target for, for all these years, in spite of the fact that Carolina's had tremendous success under Roy Williams. I mean, three national championships, but uh, Mike came to understand what it was like to be Dean. I think that gave him a great, greater appreciation for, for who he was as a coach and as a person. And as I think, you know, there's a scene I described in the legends club, which turned out to be the last time they ever saw each other. Dean was in a wheelchair. He couldn't communicate anymore. Um, and, and Mike and, and his wife, Mickey went to the beach. They both had houses and uh, figure eight. I, Linnea, Dean's wife, had said, look, you're welcome over, but he may not even know you're here. That's how bad it had gotten. Yeah. Um, and uh, so they went anyway. And Mike, as Mickey described it, Mike was doing his mind over matter thing, which he believes, believes in completely, and was talking to Dean as if he and Dean were having a conversation. Right. And talking about how proud he was of Dean getting a presidential medal and nobody deserved it more. And finally he walked over to Dean and he got down on one knee and he took Dean's hand and put it in his in a handshake and, and said very softly, he said, coach, I love you. I mean, try to imagine that in the nineties. Yeah. And, and, and Dean took his other hand and placed it on top of Mike's hands and squeezed it and smiled. Wow. And Mike knew there was recognition there. And obviously he, he burst into tears and so did Mickey. So, Mm. Uh, they came a long way from the double standard game. Let's put it that way. Yeah, that is, that's absolutely incredible. What a story. Um, let me ask you one more college basketball thing here. And it's something you mentioned earlier, Fran Dumphy. Here's a guy I know very little about, even though I've been seeing him for 30 years. And to me, he's just a guy who obviously a legendary coach, but is always there kind of with a dour expression on his face. Uh, you know, seems like somewhere between miserable and frustrated uh, constantly. What is he like as a person and what experiences have you had with him? Not like that at all as a person. Uh, I think a lot of guys, you know, Davis Love pretty well. And if you watch Davis Love, on the golf course, you would think he was pretty miserable because he never smiles. That's right. And yet he's one of the friendliest, nicest guys you'll ever meet in your life. Dumps the same way. Uh, incredibly generous uh, with time. He's come and played. Tom Watson and I started a charity golf tournament to raise money for ALS research in 2005. And Dumps has come and played in every single one of them. 
Um, even it sometimes meaning getting up at five in the morning in Philadelphia to drive to Washington, to be there to tee it up. Wow. Um, he's very bright. You know, he, he played on an all army team with Krzyzewski, uh, years and years ago. He was, Mike was, uh, an officer having graduated from West Point. Uh, Fran was a, was a, a non-com, uh, but they became friends then. And the friendship, uh, has continued ever since. That's why Duke and Temple played so often in recent years. And, uh, I think underrated as a coach, won 580 games, uh, including 17 years at, at Penn, which, as you know, is not an easy place to win 25 games year in and year out. Yeah. Um, and then rebuilt the Temple program, which had really fallen on hard times the last few years. John Chaney was the coach. Um, and just he's always, he'll call you out of the blue just to see how you're doing. Uh, he's called me a couple times since this pandemic started. Just, hey, how you doing? Wanted to check in on you. And uh, re- really well-read, history major, uh, ha- teaches a class at Temple, um, which is about communications, not sports, okay. and asked me to come and speak to his class a couple times, and just one of my favorite people. Yeah, that's great. You know, just a, a tangent off that, that's something my generation doesn't do that I wish we did. Nobody just calls each other. You know, it's something that I think has been lost yeah. with the internet. I would like to, like thinking back over these last two months, it's like, yeah, I should have done that. I should have called some of my friends, but the 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 idea of doing it is almost preposterous. <laughs> so it's like, I'm going to live vicariously through that story. The idea that a friend can just call well, you at you any know, point. I, I, you make a good point though, because all of us, regardless of age, because of, you know, cell phones and texting and email, uh, the, the phone has gotten away from us in many ways. And I've tried to make it kind of a point myself during this pandemic, just to call people who I haven't talked to for a while yeah. and, uh, yeah. check in with them and see how they're doing and catch up. And it's actually been quite enjoyable. So I, I think you make a very good point there. Uh, let me really quick go into the realm of Twitter. Uh, John, you are one of the smartest people I know. Uh, and yet I am astounded that you still do not know how to link your own articles on Twitter. And now that I have you as a captive audience, I want you to explain yourself on that. I, I've just never learned. Um, <laughs> and I have at least reached the point, uh, Shane, where if, if I want people to read something I read on, uh, I wrote on the Washington post, I can say, go to washingtonpost.com slash sports or look under my name. <laughs> and most people can get to it that way. And I think that that's a, a breakthrough. The other big breakthrough I've made is I've now learned how to link my tweets. Um, oh, when, when I go more than 180 characters. So I think I've made tremendous progress uh, from somebody who frankly would be much more comfortable right now working on a typewriter. Yeah. I, I laugh because there was somebody, one of our mutual followers, every time you would tweet about your latest golf digest would come to me and say, Shane, link it. <laughs> I became your amateur, yeah, your amateur right. link. Assistant. You, you and Dan Steinberg from the Washington post were my linkers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody's got to sit down with you. Cause I'm telling you, it is literally a two second process, but that always made That's me laugh. What everybody always says yeah, when people say this, this still take no time for you to do. And then I get, I did somebody wanted me to do something on something called Zen Zentrek which is a little bit like zoom, I guess. Okay. And they said, Oh, this is really easy. And they, I'll send you the instructions. And there were like 12 steps <laughs> and I got to step two and I just said, forget it. You're either going to find a different way to do this or we're not going to do it. I love so, it. And then, you know, with zoom, the reason I can do it is because you send me the link and I press a button. Yeah, no, it is. It I is nice that. that way. Yeah. Um, but I do bring that up because despite that, <laughs> despite that unbelievable uh, sort of like space in your in your skill set, uh, you are a really great Twitter follow. And one 
Uh, one thing I've really enjoyed is that you, you're doing this anecdote a day um, thing every morning on Twitter, and you've got a million anecdotes, and they're all good. And I was looking through them recently, trying to think which one I, I, I thought would be best for this podcast. Uh, and if you don't mind me putting you on the spot, I think the Gabriella Sabatini one is uh, is particularly good when you got to yes, interview her. Yes, I appreciate her. you bringing up what was arguably the most embarrassing moment in my professional career. Um <laughs> But it was in 1985 at the French Open, and Sabatini was just kind of bursting onto the world stage. She was 15. Uh, she was gorgeous. Um, you know, she looked 20. Uh, and she could really play. She made it to the French Open semis that year. And uh, I was able to get her agent, Dick Dell, not Donald, Dick's brother, who's a good guy, uh, to arrange for me to sit down and talk to her after I think it was her third round match. He said, as long as she wins. And obviously if she lost, I wasn't going to write about her anyway during that tournament, but she won pretty easily. And we sat down in the players lounge and I, you know, when you're interviewing somebody who you don't know, you're looking for an opening to get them talking. Yeah. And when the person is 15 years old and speaking in their second language, you really want to find something that'll get them to feel comfortable. And I mean, I'm sure she's looking at me like, who is this person and why am I talking to him? So I remember that the year before at the U S open, which was her first professional tennis tournament, she'd gotten to the third round and she'd made $8,000, um, which was a lot of money for a 14 year old in that, in those days. And after she lost to Helena Sokova, somebody said to her, what are you going to do with the money you've made uh, from this week? And she said, oh, my parents just bought me a, a little dog and I'm going to go out and buy her a present. So I remembered that and I thought, aha, I'll ask her what she got the dog. Maybe that'll <laughs> loosen her up, get her talking about what she got her and why she got her and how cute the dog is and who knows. So we sat down, blah, blah. And I said, so uh, what did you end up getting your dog with the money that you made at the U.S. Open last year? And she burst into tears. <laughs> I mean, just burst into tears, weeping. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, what have I done? And people come running from all over because we we're in the players' lounge. So yeah. Dick Deller, aging, I mean, the WTA PR people come running. You know, other people come, what have you done to this child in 30 seconds that she's weeping? And so Dick says to me, he says, well, what did, what did you do? What did you do? I said, I just asked her about getting a present for her dog. And he goes, oh, my God, the dog? And she's screaming, the dog died. The dog died. <laughs> Apparently it got run over before she even got home. And oh, my I, goodness. The best feeling I've ever had as a reporter. Oh, and, you know, that is so funny. Literally about a child here. She's 15 years old. And so finally they got her to cut. I mean, she was sobbing, and they finally calmed her down. And Dick said, I, I think we should, we should end this, John. And Gabriella, to her everlasting credit, said, no, no, I understand. I understand. It's okay. And we ended up, we finished the interview. She didn't have a heck of a lot to say. She's 15 years old. Um, but God bless her for hanging in there and doing it. Yeah, I mean, that is too funny. I mean, because it does. Yeah, it seems like, hey, a great thing, a wasn't dog. Wasn't funny then. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm sure it wasn't. I'm sure it wasn't. And, you know, one interesting thing, in your book, One-on-One, -on -One, where you recount some of the conversations you've had with um, with players, and I believe this is where I read it, but you talk a lot about covering tennis and this idea that I think when you went to golf, you found it was a friendlier group of players and it was a little bit yeah. easier to cover them. And tennis is my favorite sport. And, 
you know, I don't think I would ever do a tennis book or think about it because I just don't think, you know, it's it's that appealing and nobody would want to publish it and nobody would probably buy it. But I would love to cover tennis. And so it was kind of sad for me to hear that, that this was even more difficult uh, for you to cover than golf. Tennis was a sport I, I desperately wanted to cover. It was the one sport my parents really liked. They both played. Um, and I can remember, you know, going to matches with my mom and my dad. I saw Arthur Ashe win the first U.S. Open at Forest Hills with my mom. We rode the subway out from Manhattan. Um, and I, I loved the sport. I, I loved watching the sport. I never played it very well, but I loved watching it, and I wanted to cover it. And one of the great thrills of my life was the first time I got sent to cover the French Open in Wimbledon in 1985. Mm. Um, but I learned very quickly that when you cover tennis, you have virtually no access. That interview I did with Sabatini was a near miracle to get a one-on-one. -on -one. Yeah. And the only reason I got it was because Dick Dell lived in Washington and he understood that the Washington Post was a big deal. Uh, but for the most part, you had no access to locker rooms. You had no access to player lounges unless you were specially invited in. Um, no, but you, you asked for a one-on-one, -on -one, people would look at you like you were nuts. And when I did my tennis book, Hard Courts, by then I had covered the sport for five years and I knew some of the important people. I had a relationship with McEnroe. I had a relationship with Connors. Yeah. I knew Everett. I knew Navratilova. I, you know, I knew, I even knew Lendl, even though we didn't get along particularly well back then, we became friends later. Uh, and I knew people running the sport. So I was able to get into the same hotels the players were staying at so I could see them in the lobby and grab them away from the courts. But it was, it, it was best summed up this way. There was a French player named Henri Leconte. You might remember him. He was a French Open finalist one year. Mm -hmm. um, good player. Not a great player, but a good player. Um, and and a, a perfectly nice guy. And spoke good English. And I approached him one day uh, to interview him for the book. He was probably ranked sixth in the world at the time. And I said to him, and he said, oh, yes, yes, for sure. How much time do you need? The classic athlete's question. Mm -hmm. And I've learned through the years, Shane, you never tell them the truth. <laughs> yeah, uh, right. Tell them the truth, they'll flip out. So I said, I don't know, 20 minutes? And he went, what? <laughs> 20 minutes? I've never spoken to anyone for 20 minutes. <laughs> the first long interview I did for A Good Walk Spoiled was with Davis Love. And we were sitting in a condo in Kings Mill, Virginia, and we got about two hours into the interview. And I said to Davis, hey, how are you set on time? And he said, well, you, you said you were writing a book, so I just blocked off the whole afternoon. Amazing. Said, yeah. I, gotten to him. I mean, the, the, and most of the golfers were that way. I know you didn't have that experience when you did your golf book, um, Chasing the Tiger. Not always, yeah. Most, mostly not. Then, yeah, back then, I, the only agent I dealt with in the entire process, Shane, was a guy named Bev Norwood, who's since passed away, who worked at IMG at the time. Mm -hmm. And Bev approached me and said, he was a baseball fan, and I had just written a baseball book, so he knew me a little. He said, do you want to talk to Greg Norman and Nick Faldo for this book? And I said, yeah, of course I'd like to talk to him, but I'm not going to jump through hoops to do it. Because mm -hmm. I thought I was in shape with the guys I was working with. And he said, well, what if I could set it up for you? And I said, well, then I'd be an idiot to say no. <laughs> and he did. He set me up with Faldo. He set me up with Norman. I had lengthy sessions with them. Uh, they were terrific once I sat them down. But other than that, everything I did was going directly to players. See, you this, can't really do that. 
yeah, this is like hearing that story is like being a, a poor starving kid with his face pressed to the glass of a supermarket, <laughs> looking in at all the beautiful food. No, you know, I've had I listen, I spoke with Paul McGinley um, at the Players Championship just before everything oh, shut the down. Nicest man on earth. Oh, he was great. Yeah, and I had that thing of, like you said, we spoke for an hour and a half, and I said, "My gosh, I've used up so much of your time." And he's like, "No, no, no problem." And we we ended up speaking for more than three hours, and it was a, a wonderful interview uh, about the Ryder Cup. Um, yeah, I don't know if I've told you, but I've had the one, really original uh, novel idea to write a book about the Ryder Cup, John. Uh, so, yeah, I've never heard of anybody doing a book about that. Yeah, yeah. I, no, we'll talk about that in a second. But yeah, no, it's. Um, I think one of the big differences, I remember talking to you when you were obviously writing your 2016 Ryder Cup book. And you were a little bit annoyed that it was it was proving tough to get into the locker room. And that, to me, was, I completely understood you because your books have had great access and you, you make great use of it. But it was funny also for me to hear that uh, because the concept of me asking <laughs> for, for locker room access. I mean, even someone like Davis Love, I would be thrilled if I could get a, a half hour with him at some point um, this year. And so, yeah, I guess it shows obviously, you know, your status and your reputation precedes you. But I think there is a... a um, a difference you can call generational or something like that about how things have changed and how much agents now kind of control no, the terms. There's no question. When I, when I did the first major, my Ryder cup book, um, there were a lot of guys I dealt with who I already knew. And that was, mm -hmm. uh, Davis was a, the, the American captain. I knew Darren Clark, your good friend, who was the European captain. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I knew Rory McElroy. I knew Justin, uh, Justin Rose. Um, I, I knew, uh, Steve Stricker and, and uh, Tom Lehman, who were uh, vice captains on the U.S. side. I knew Mickelson. Um, but there were younger guys, Jordan Spieth, Justin Thomas, who ended up not making the team, uh, and, um, uh, and Ricky Fowler, who I had to go through their agents in order to get to them. Mm -hmm. And it was, believe it or not, it was not that bad with, with Jordan at all. Uh, his agent got me, you know, we, they postponed a couple times, but when I sat down with Jordan, I don't know if you spent any time with him, but he is a genuinely nice person. Agreed. And he Agreed. apologized for the two postponements. And I said, no, Jordan, you're doing me a favor, giving me the time. And he looked at me, this is 2015 when he's at the height of his, his powers. That's right. And he said, aren't you doing me a favor by putting me in your book? I don't get that a lot from athletes. And then when we finished that interview, um, I said, you know, I'm going to want to circle back to you as the year goes on. And he said, look, just, you don't have to deal with Jay. Just take, my cell number and call me whenever you need me. And, and that's what we, what we yeah. did. Yeah. Ricky Fowler's agent is maybe the worst person in the history of golf. <laughs> Ricky's a really nice kid, but trying to get time with Ricky was a little bit like if I called right now and God forbid, wanted to interview Donald Trump. And that's probably a good segue uh, into the Ryder Cup stuff. Uh, I wrote a piece for Golf Digest a little while ago saying, I don't think a Ryder Cup without fans is even worth holding. And I only realized after I wrote it that maybe I shouldn't have because I'm not entirely objective. It occurred to me about a week later that it's going to be incredibly difficult for me to cover uh, a Ryder Cup, to write a Ryder Cup book this year because I can't cover the tournaments leading up to it. It's going to be, the access is going to be so limited. And so I'm really rooting for a postponement. Um, so let me turn it to you, somebody, you know, less subjective about the whole thing. Uh, do you think uh, the Ryder Cup should be held without people? We've seen Rory come out against it. Uh, we've seen other people come out against it. What's your opinion on that one? Well, let me repeat words that I have said many, many times in the last 10 years or so. Rory is right. Yeah, Rory right. is almost never wrong. He's smarter than all the other guys out there. He's more thoughtful than the other guys out there. 
And of course I'm not, I have no, I have uh, no dog in this race, no horse in this race. I'm not doing a Ryder cup book this year. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't have the Ryder cup without fans. There are some events in sports that won't be the same without fans. None of them will be, but you can hold them, you know, and, and you're missing something, but you'll, you'll still be able to hold them. The Ryder cup, mostly for better, sometimes for worse, is very much about the fans on both sides of the ocean and how different the fans are in Europe from the fans here in the United States. For one thing, the fans here in the United States tend to be more rude. Um, some of the scenes I witnessed at Hazeltine uh, were awful. disgusting. Awful, yeah. They were disgusting. Uh, and I, I was walking on Saturday with the match that Rory McIlroy was playing in. And there was a guy as we were walking from, I think it was six T six green to seven T who was so profane and, and so disgusting that Rory to his credit simply turned to a, a security guy and got to get him out of there. And he told me later, the reason he did that was because he was afraid if he didn't, he was going to jump the ropes and go after the guy. Yeah. And I wouldn't yeah. blame him one bit. I was involved in an incident in 1999 at the Ryder cup on Sunday when the U S was rallying, um, at the country club. And I was walking with the last match, which was Colin Montgomery versus Payne Stewart. And we're walking from nine green to 10 T. And again, it was a drunk who kept screaming the worst possible word at Montgomery kept saying, you're a blank, you're a blank, you're nothing but a fat blank. Mm -hmm. And I turned around and I, I, and I said, just stop it. You're embarrassing me as an American. And before he could respond or I could say anything else, there was a hand on my shoulder. I turned around, it was pain. And he said, I got this. Mm -hmm. And he walked over in the direction of the guy, pointed at him, pointed at security and said, get him out now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so, but, but the, the singing and the chanting and the wild cheering, it's part of the Ryder cup. I mean, it's, it's what one of the things that's made the Ryder cup a unique event in, in golf and in sports. And, if you play with no, I mean, the fact that Rory and Justin Rose and all these others two are going to be playing on the road are saying we can't have it without the fans when they're the ones who are going to bear the brunt of the drunks. Yeah. They're going to benefit the most from a, from no fans. Yeah, exactly. No, you absolutely, you know, you can have the masters, you can have the U S open PGA, whatever, without fans, not the same, but you can do it. You're still playing for a major title and the pressure will be there and TV will get, you know, it's stuff, but you can't have the Ryder cup with fans without fans. You just can't do it. Yeah. I, you know, obviously I agree. You know, Paul McGinley said something to me last week when we spoke that he said, basically everybody is going to have to make certain sacrifices during this whole pandemic and that it doesn't necessarily right. look great for Rory when he's saying this. It makes it seem a little bit entitled. And obviously, golf is not a sport where you want to be thought of as entitled. That's already part of the reputation, et cetera, et cetera. But basically, that they should be willing to play the Ryder Cup with no fans, almost as a take one for the team and show that just like the Bundesliga or just like any of these other sports, we're going to play without fans. I happen to agree with you. I think, I think the Ryder Cup is its own special category that's just not the same. Ryder Cup happens once every two years. The Bundesliga, they're playing five games a week. When the Premier League comes back, they'll be playing 10 games a week, however many it might be, or mm-hmm. I don't know the exact numbers. Same with Major League Baseball. You know, if you're playing, you're going to have games uh, every day. Uh, this is a once every two years event. And, I, you know, the, one of the great things about Rory is he doesn't care 
how it makes him look when he says something. That's when right. he said he wasn't going to the Olympics because of the Zika virus and was asked, you know, will you watch? And he said, yeah, I'll watch the important events like swimming and track and field <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. and basketball. But I probably won't watch the golf. People went crazy. Golf people went crazy. <laughs> um, in fact, uh, somebody worked, the, one of the uh, bosses at Golf Channel walked onto the set while Rory was still talking and said, when this is over, you have to crush him because the Olympics were on NBC, mm, of course. Right. And Rory said what he said because he believed it to be true. He happened to be right. I don't think golf belongs in the Olympics. I don't think tennis belongs in the Olympics. If winning an Olympic gold medal is not the biggest thing in your sport, then maybe, then not maybe, then it shouldn't be in the Olympics. And basketball may be at that point too. Hockey, no, because the Europeans care more about the Olympics than they do about the Stanley Cup. But right. Rory was right. Rory says things all the time. Like, go back. I don't know if you remember this. The last day they played golf at the Players' Championship, the first round. Mm -hmm. And Jay Monahan basically put out this thing saying, hey, it's okay. You know, we'll keep playing. We don't, you know, we'll play without fans if we have to. But we're going to play the Super Bowl of, of, of our sport. By, by the way, it's not even the wild card of their sport, you know. <laughs> it's but... And all the players are, are, are just, you know, mouthing and repeating and all the guys on Golf Channel, except for Brandel Chambly, were saying, oh, Jay knows what he's doing and blah, 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 blah. Rory walked off the golf course having played well and, and went to talk to me and said, what, are you kidding? We can't keep playing. What if one of our volunteers, all of whom are over 70, gets the virus from one of us mm -hmm. or from a caddy? Mm -hmm. Or what, what if one of us gets sick? He was 100% right. Nobody else in golf had either the smarts and or the guts to say it other than Shambly, uh, and, and, and people don't give him credit, enough credit. In fact, Rory said to me one time after that whole Olympic thing, he said, I, I, I get a little tired of all these golf writers, of commentators, who just want to, you know, everybody to, to, to say, Bert, talk about birdies and bogeys and not be controversial. He said, I hope they don't turn me into Tiger someday, where I just say nothing. And I said, I hope not to. Yeah, you know, and going back to that Hazeltine, uh, that I think on the course, that was one of the most heroic efforts in a losing cause that I've seen. It would have been a little bit more heroic if he had been able to beat Patrick Reed, but it's completely no surprise to me that he couldn't at the end because he put so much energy and he was really the sort of beacon of his team that week. It was really something to see. And on that topic and bringing back what you said about the fans, tell me if I'm imagining this. Uh, I felt there was an extra level of tension in that 2016 cup. And it would be the same in 2020 because of the presidential election. And in my head, that's another very good reason to postpone it by a year because I think it made yeah. fan behavior even worse. And I, here's the thing. I couldn't point to a concrete example, but I just think like the tenor and the emotion of the country at the time, which is not going to be any different in a swing state in Wisconsin in 2020. Um, if they do have fans, uh, you know, it just felt like it made things worse in a way. Did you, did you get that at all? Yeah. Did you uh, ever read the piece that Danny Willett's brother wrote that week that I, caused so much controversy? I thought it was hilarious. And I thought it was hilarious. Not and only was it hilarious, it was true. It was true. He described the American fans absolutely correctly, the inferiority complex and, you know, we've got to prove that we're better than you because the U.S. had been uh, been dominated for the last 30 years, really, yeah, in the Ryder yeah. Cup. And that, that ratcheted up the anger. Um, it's an angry country right now, Shane, you know that. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's going to be angrier by the time we get to the last week in September. 
uh, because Trump and his people are going to keep trying to rile things up and keep telling lies. And, you know, let, I don't want to get too political, but everybody knows where I stand politically. That's right. But yes, I, I think uh, probably it would be better to have the Ryder Cup a year from now uh, with or without fans. It would be better. Now, if you can have fans, obviously you'll have it this year. Of course. Yeah. Um, but, but, uh, but yes, I, I, I think that the, the, the American frustration, both among the players and among the, the fans, was a big part of the tension there. And it was best summed up by, you know, the, the argument David Duval and Brandel Chambly had on the air two nights before the matches began when Brandel, who always comes armed with a million stats, mm-hmm. was talking about the U.S. failures and, and attributing a lot of them to Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson, saying the leaders have to lead. And they have not led well. It's our record as a result. This is their individual records. And David, who played on Ryder Cup teams with both of them, um, and is one of the few players who I think actually liked Tiger, uh, because in the old days, none, none of them liked him. Um, but David did. And so he defended them and, and was kind of mean to Brandel. And I say that as, as someone who's friends with both of them. And got a standing ovation when Davis invited him into the team room that night. Yeah. <laughs> Because the U.S. was absolutely in an us-against-them mindset, and it worked well for them as it turned out. Yeah, yeah, and that you know that was something I, I didn't love that story. I don't like the idea of like David Duvall as a, I, and I think Brandel Chambly. I'm not saying he was 100 percent right. I don't like the idea of somebody going and getting applause from the players and sort of, I don't know, taking their side and things like it felt uncomfortable from a journalism well, angle. Brandel was me. upset because David was there as a member of the media. That's right. That's exactly and, and right. No members of the media were allowed in that team room. Yeah, yeah. And, and David was allowed in as a former Ryder Cupper. I get that. Mm-hmm. Um, He's also allowed in there because Davis, who's, who's smarter than, than he sometimes appears to be, saw a chance to bond his team and yeah. bond them around dislike of Brandel Chambly. And it's a little bit sad <laughs> that you've got to bond your team around that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He willingly did it. And Brandel wasn't so much upset with David for disagreeing with him. I used to disagree with Brandel on the air all the time. Uh, and and we're, we're, we're good friends. Um, he was upset that David, who was there to work for Golf Channel, went into the team room and was part of a pep rally, basically. Yeah, and he, but what is interesting about that phenomenon a little bit is that the U.S. seemed to thrive having a villain or having someone to go up against. And one of the big things I'm trying to figure out, and there are a thousand different answers, but as I write this Ryder Cup book, obviously the simple question is, why has Europe been so good lately? Why are they so dominant? And one thing I keep getting from the European side of things, and to go back to Paul McGinley, He said that the U.S. routinely underestimates the Europeans, routinely overestimates themselves, despite the history. You know, the the years and years of losing doesn't sway them at all. And the way he put it was, you can't help yourselves. And he pointed to an example of Paul Azinger with his comments uh, about Tommy Fleetwood and, and, you know, how winning on the PGA Tour Yeah, is paramount. And so, you know, it is interesting to me that the one year that the U.S. sort of saw themselves backed into the corner, they did quite well. Um but, you know, it's like the Europeans, oh, I think, always have that because America is always the juggernaut. And somehow they've been able to do that thing where they're the ones who are fighting back, even though they should be looked at as the supermen because they win all the time. Yeah, well, first of all, in terms of the Azing or Tommy Fleetwood comment, um, Tommy Fleetwood is one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet in your entire life. Yeah. And I guarantee you he's going to be so fired up. I mean, it's not like he was bad in Paris, right? But he'll be so <laughs> yeah. fired up to tee it up in Whistling Straits because of what Azinger said. 
that European tour, he acts like it's it, it's double uh, A baseball or something. Yeah, and I like Paul, but uh, but yeah, uh, McGinley is right, and I think that that um, part of it, frankly, is look, we're all human. The, the American guys read read their press clippings, they watch TV, and they keep hearing, well, we've got Tiger Woods, we've got Phil, Phil Mickelson, we've got Jordan Spieth now, we've got Justin Thomas, blah blah. We should kick butt, but they don't. They forget sometimes that a in in Europe the Ryder Cup is as big as any major. Mm. That's part of it. Yeah. And b the Europeans know how to win. And it's not so much about you know that they sing kumbaya together in the team room, but it's that they all. I mean, um, uh, Ian Poulter, who's arguably the best European Ryder Cup player ever, uh, said to me when I was working on the book, he said. You know, everybody thinks that, that we sing Kumbaya together. Look, we, we have disagreements. We have guys who don't like other guys. Uh, that's part. But for one week, we put it outside the door. And when the week is over, we walk outside the door, and then we all think Monty's a jerk again. Uh, <laughs> and, and the U.S. Has, has had trouble with that. And I think it was not a coincidence that in 2016, Tiger Woods, for one week, wasn't Tiger Woods. He was a vice captain who was trying like hell to help the Americans win. Mm -hmm. And so there was no schism within the team room, Tiger guys, Phil guys, whatever. It was every all for one. And they all wanted to make up for Medina and they wanted to make up for the embarrassment at Glen Eagles. And, and they, they played really well. The other thing that you got to point out is that was probably the weakest European team in the last 20 years. Yeah. And they knew, and they knew that going in, they, you know, McGinley was saying they they knew going in, in it was going to be a hard win. Um, and yet you wonder if Patrick Reed doesn't hole out on the six hole Saturday afternoon when the lead was down to one and he and Jordan go on to win that match, Mm -hmm. if that doesn't happen and it did, but if that doesn't happen and the score at the end of Saturday instead of being 10, six or 10 and a half, five and a half, uh, was nine, seven or something right. with the Americans have choked on Sunday. Yeah. It's very, very interesting to think about. You know, one thing that always strikes me is after the Paris Ryder cup, how all the Europeans came out and they kind of took a shot at Alan Shipnuck and, you know, Shipnuck had written something that I thought was a pretty funny piece. And I thought it was tongue in cheek enough that it was clear that he was, you know, sort of putting on this arrogant American character when after the President's right. Cup, he wrote that there was no chance for the Europeans. Uh, but they really cared about that. And, you know, and the fact that they brought it up showed that this was something that motivated them. And they're, they're very good at that, no matter no matter what the numbers say, no matter how this whole generation, no matter how dominant they've been, they can find something. It's almost Jordan-like. They can find something to to rally against, and they're they're very good at cohering, as you said, if not throughout their whole careers, at least for that weekend when it matters. Yeah, and and um, my guess is they all knew it was tongue in cheek um, because Alan's been writing golf for as long as I have, and uh, they 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 know how how he is and. Uh, but they, they still used it. You know, it's like Jordan making up people uh, being out to get him for one reason or another. I mean, that's what competitors do. Yeah. I'm sure Bjorn wanted to give him a, a share of the Ryder Cup purse after, <laughs> after they won in Paris. But, you know, I, I know you talked to McGinley. In, in 2014, McGinley was very nervous because everybody was saying Tom Watson's team had no chance at Glen Eagles. Yeah. And it turned out they were right, but the last thing – a European Ryder Cup captain wants to be is considered the favorite. They love the underdog role. 
And he was, he was very, very, very conscious of that, as I'm sure you know. And he was doing everything in his power to manage media expectations, saying yeah. that, you know, he would go out of his way to say, oh, my resume can't compare to Tom Watson's. Well, in his head, he was, you know, very confident. He had been captain of different Seve Trophy teams, and he considered himself very able. And I think he was a terrific captain, but he did not say that. He did everything he could to put the perception in that the Americans should be the favorites. I don't see the Americans thinking that strategically uh, in terms of media or anything else, really. And I think probably that's that's probably one of the problems. No, you're right. And, and Rory McIlroy will tell you, by the way, and he's played every Ryder Cup since 2010, that McKinley was the best captain he played under. That's and interesting. That's not on the other guys. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. A lot of them have done good. I, I'm telling you, I, I was impressed at the time, and after sitting down with him and learning the thought that went into these things, the intricacy stunned me. I, I, I don't see how anybody can top what he did, at least from a planning perspective. Um, well, I told you the story about you know flying to see Graham McDowell to explain to him that he was only going to play once on Friday and Saturday, yeah, and that he was specifically going to play him in the afternoon. With I'm blocking the name of the French player. Victor Dubuisson. Yeah. Yeah, Dubuisson. And 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 explaining why I need you in this role and I need you to to bring this guy along who's got talent but no experience. And by the time he was done, uh, uh, Graham was all fired up for that role. And, and so it, it, this trick. And the big thing too is in terms of managing personalities, the big thing is that Graham was disappointed not to play that much. He wasn't over the moon about playing with Dubuisson because he's such an odd character. But then the the right. sweet the sweetener was that he got to go out first in uh, in singles. That was another really big thing. And right. just to sh- just to go into a couple more quick details there to show how comprehensive uh, McGinley was. He had paired in secret McGinley or sorry McDowell and Dubuisson throughout the year on the European tour. He had managed the draws without letting them know so that he Which could get European captains can do. Yeah, well, before him, they couldn't. He had to actually have a big fight with uh, with the European Tour to do that. Um, and they didn't know it, and so we could get honest impressions from them. Then he had the other plan that if he only plays McDowell twice, he's going to be very fresh, and that whoever the Americans put out number one is probably going to be somebody who's either played every match or at least has played two matches on Saturday and is going to be tired. And that was, it happened to be Spieth, and that's exactly what happened. He tired out. And then another thing is that he knew how much it meant for Dubuisson uh, to have McDowell as a kind of like comfort blanket or a safety blanket or whatever. And so Dubuisson goes out 12th, knowing that the minute McDowell finishes, he can go back and walk with Victor through the rest of the thing. So it's just like, it's like watching this intricate jigsaw puzzle fall into place when you hear him tell you yeah, how he, he plans. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, before, John, before I let you go here, um, if you have a moment, I'd love to ask you a little bit about Major League Baseball. Uh, it's something that I've been following very closely, the labor dispute. And uh, you wrote a column for the Washington Post. And I just want to really quickly read your last sentence in that column. And uh, I'll link that when I put this up. But you said, it's always easy to blame the greedy millionaires, but more often than not, the greedy billionaires are most at fault. That was the case in 1994. That's the case now. Uh, and since then, we've seen even more developments. Uh, you know, th- the basic situation is that the players agreed on a prorated salary. So if you play half the games, you get half of what you're paid. Now the owners are coming back with this concept that's almost ironic in that it's a progressive tax where they want to tax the people making over 20 million, 80%. And they're trying to nickel and dime and, and almost tantamount to a salary cap in certain ways. Um, I've been infuriated by it. I think it's terrible. I hope it doesn't work from a PR angle, but I did want to get your take on that, uh, on this, what seems like the owner's attempt to, do the same thing they did in 94, which is try to rely on the public to think of the players and not the owners as the greedy sort of covetous types. 
Yeah, well, owners in, in all sports do this all the time. Uh, they claim poverty, uh, and they know that the mo- many, if not most, in the public are going to side with them uh, because they see how exactly how much the players are making. Mm-hmm. 99% of us aren't making that kind of money. And they go, you know, how can you turn away from $7 million a year or whatever it might be? Uh, I, I think I brought up $7 million a year because of Blake Snell and, and what he had had, had had said on Twitch. I have no idea what Twitch is, by the way. Um, but, <laughs> you, you'd love but, it. It's only uh, There's only a 17-step process to get onto it. You should try it. There you go. So hold your breath waiting for me to get on Twitch. <laughs> um, but it's almost always the owners who, who create these problems. It was the owners in 1994 who unilaterally tried to impose a collective bargaining agreement, which is against the law, as Sonia Sotomayor eventually ruled, which is what ended that strike finally. Um, they tried to unilaterally uh, enforce a new CBA with a salary cap. And the players said, no, we'll go on strike. And they did. And go back and check the clips. It was always the players who were the bad guys. Mm-hmm. The owners were the bad guys. The owners are, you know, the, the, the greedy millionaires line comes from a quote from Faye Vincent, who was the commissioner, who said, if we go out and uh, have another work stoppage, people are going to look at it as greedy billionaires versus greedy millionaires. But most people blame the greedy millionaires. It's okay in the minds of many for older white men to be rich and want more, Mm -hmm. but it's not okay in the minds of many for younger men, many of whom are black, many of whom are Hispanic, um, to be making a lot of money and saying, wait a minute, we don't accept this offer. You know, how dare they? Well, they're protecting their careers the same way you and I would try to protect our careers, except theirs are going to be shorter. The average major league baseball player plays for 5.6 years. Mm -hmm. Um, There are some who play more, obviously some who play a lot less. Um, But the owners are always crying poverty. And I, and I said, I tweeted it again today. I said, fine, show us your books, show us exactly why you need more of a pay cut than what was already agreed to. And of course they won't. Mm -hmm. And they're just going to say, they're going to cry poverty and they're going to say it's the player's fault. And trust me, Shane, it's the owner's fault. It's always the owner's fault. <laughs> yeah. And I mean that always the owner's fault. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what frustrates me a lot about it is that it is so representative of some of the deeper psychological problems this country has where, like you said, when you have a dispute like this now, okay, I know it may be a stretch to call the players workers in the classical sense, because a lot of them are making millions of dollars, but you know what? They're earning their market value. Okay. They have decided the free market has decided that this is what they're worth. So it's why is it okay and why do people, you know, hopefully not everybody, and again, hopefully things have changed a little since 94, but why is it that people are so willing to hit them and call them greedy? And then you've got, the, like you said, you've got the greedy billionaires, the owners above them that are just Teflon. It's like nobody sees them. Uh, it's just really puzzling to me, and I hate that dynamic. Yeah, and it's been around forever. Um, I mean, it goes back to the Supreme Court ruling against Kurt Flood. Uh, which clearly they should not have. Uh, and, and it also goes back to there not being uh, the out, more of an outcry when Marvin Miller wasn't allowed into the Hall of Fame for years and years and years until he was dead. Meanwhile, Bowie Kuhn, who was a complete stiff, was in the <laughs> Hall of Fame. Yeah. Um, and, and it, you know, it, it, that's, the, that's the way it is. Uh, and I hate to say it, and I know people go nuts when I say things like this. Some of it's racial. Some of it has to do with yeah. younger yeah. African-Americans who have money, younger Hispanics who have money. Um, and people sort of think it's okay for 
uh, old white guys to have money, even though many of them inherited it. Um, but uh, you can you can bet if if they don't get this worked out, and if we don't have a major league season, they're going to take a poll at some point this summer, and seventy five percent of respondents are going to blame the players. Yeah, that's the way it is. Yeah, you know there was already an article in the Atlanta Journal Constitution, you know, taking taking shots at Snell, and it's like, you know, he was right. Who cares? Who cares what his tone was? Snell was right. He yeah. didn't word it well. No, he you, you, sure, sure. Write it for him. But yeah, yeah. The point he was making is a hundred percent correct. All right, John. Last question for you. Before we started talking, I asked you if you had watched the Last Dance, and you said not a minute of it, and that you were consciously avoiding it. Uh, I just wanted to. We didn't. We didn't go any deeper than that, but I want to now. Um, why haven't you watched? Well, a couple of reasons. Uh, one, from everything I had read and everything I read as it went along, there was nothing in there I didn't already know. Mm-hmm. Michael Jordan's a prick. I mean, that's news. I mean, <laughs> come on. Everybody knew that. He was proud of it. Uh, Michael Jordan gambled. Really? No kidding. Um, but, but it was more than that, though, Shane. It comes down to uh, the fact that he had final say over the content. Yeah. And any time the subject of something has final say over the content, then you can't trust it because things will get left out. Cause he says they're going to be left out. Uh, even, you know, his explanation of the whole Republicans buy sneakers thing was complete BS to me. If you're going to sell product and nobody in the history of the planet has sold more product than Michael Jordan, then you do have an obligation to the public. You do have an obligation to be a role model to younger people. You do have an obligation to stand up for things because you're standing up for Hanes underwear. You're standing up for Nike. So why can't you stand up against somebody who is a segregationist in the United States Senate for 35 years? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I didn't buy it, but nobody questioned him on it because they weren't allowed to. Yeah. Nobody, they didn't exactly bring somebody like me on who would say that. I wouldn't have done it because it was ESPN, but that's not the point. <laughs> um, but you know, what, what was the, the HBO did a thing, the scheme, you know, which was about this, this, uh, this dirt bag who was in the middle of the FBI investigations. I forget his name now. Okay. And I didn't watch that either because he was paid to talk. Yeah. Yeah. So to me, all credibility goes out the window because he's trying to give them their money's worth. And, and basically again, from what I read about it, his basic thing was, well, I didn't do anything wrong because the NCAA is corrupt. So I guess because, you know, banks high, uh, charge higher interest rates than they should, it's okay to rob a bank. Right. Um, right, right. So I, I have a fairly high level of uh, you've got to prove to me that th- this is real for me to spend my time watching it. And the fact that I, I think 98% of what was in there, I would have shaken. I mean, I talked to Steve Kerr about his relationship with Jordan 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. I don't need to see Steve on camera saying things to a camera that he said to me 20 years ago. <laughs> um, and people tell me that was some of the more interesting stuff. You want to find out how interesting it was, read my book one-on-one. <laughs> there um, you go. Yes, there you go. Uh, that's why I, I didn't want that. And the fact that as I think, you know, I'm something of a contrarian. So if everybody says you got to watch, I'm probably not going to watch. <laughs> no, well, the one thing you're, I mean, you're right. And the thing you're most right about is that, uh, they almost did a tricky thing where they would bring up some of the negative stuff. And they did have somebody on who said, Oh, you know, Michael Jordan, you know, didn't oppose Jesse Helms or whatever, but the rhythm of every single story was every, every vaguely negative story is you bring on somebody 
says something, you know, slightly bad about Michael Jordan. And then you have three people say, say the other thing, including they, they, they use right. Barack Obama this way too, of saying, well, you know, it's tricky. It's tricky. It's tricky. And then you conclude with Jordan saying, Hey, I'm just a basketball player. You know, all I wanted to do is win. Why should I have to do anything well, else? That, and that's fine. Just don't sell Haynes underwear to me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just play basketball and try to win. If, you, if that's what you're about, then that's fine. And then I don't think you have an obligation, but if you're going to sell every product in America, and if you're going to unfortunately allow David Falk to be the major influence in your life, then you got more of an obligation than to just be a basketball player. John, this was awesome as always. Thank you very, very much for coming on. Glad to do it, Shane. Good to talk to you. Segment break. That was John Feinstein. John, thank you again very much for being on. Thank you all for listening. You know that if you want to listen to this thing, you can get it on iTunes. You can subscribe there, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts. Hey, leave a review on iTunes if you liked it. Leave a five-star review. Can't hurt. Tell a friend. Tell a family member. Tell anybody you like within reason. Don't tell ISIS. I don't want them listening to this podcast. That's where I draw the line. All right, everybody. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful weekend, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.